AlienLegacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. Everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is Edge. Hey, everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. <clears throat> hey, everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. So this is HTML, <laughs> Husbands Talking More or Less, Alien Legacy, and we are here to discuss Alien Covenant. Yeah. This is the final film to feature a xenomorph that we will have on this program until our end half, where we'll talk about seeing Alien in theaters for the first time. Of course, we have several Alien mini-movies and, like, short films to go. Which is part of why even though this is definitely not my favorite Xeno film, I'm not too sad to bid adieu to seeing our favorite face-hugging fearsome creatures on screen. Because I don't think this will be the last Alien movie. If Ridley Scott has his way, his sequel to Covenant will come out in the next several years. But before we can get to that, I've been ragging on Covenant since day one of this project and I have to say, what I thought was like a D-minus movie, honestly, C+. It's not a great film, but any stretch of the imagination, but it's not the worst thing to happen to the Alien franchise in the last 20 years, that's for damn sure. It's really not. The final writer on the project, John Logan, talked about how his main concept for the story was adopting a dual plotline for the film, combining the horror elements of the original Alien with the philosophical elements of Prometheus. And frankly, I think that's even part of the downfall of this film. It felt like the philosophical stuff didn't really jibe with all of the horror and I'm not sure some of the horror elements were properly translated from the original Alien. I think there are some ways that it definitely was, but especially in the final act, it really just starts to fall apart. And I think part of that is because, as we discovered on this watch-through, the easiest way to turn Covenant from a bad movie in a good franchise to an okay movie in a good franchise is to include the, like, 11 fucking short films. Yeah, and I said this last episode when we were talking about Prometheus how it's becoming difficult to enjoy these films that like to do their little spin-offs and shorts and easter eggs because sometimes those spin-offs and shorts enhance the plot of the film in ways that are kind of necessary to get more full enjoyment out of it and I don't want to have to dig that deeply to enjoy a movie. You should be getting more out of searching more, not you can only get enjoyment if you see these things out, you know? I agree, because all said and done, there are 13 pieces of side canon for Alien Covenant, and the 13 didn't come out until a month ago or so. Yeah, and that was a really interesting one, too. The fact that David's lab, Last Signs of Life, was mostly silent and didn't feature any characters that we know or knew and didn't really seem to be pointing toward any sort of next film, either. It was a very strange thing to randomly release two years after the home video release of the original film. Well, as this is the 40th anniversary of Alien, and we 
saw something like six shorts released to YouTube. Mm. We saw the adaptation of Alien Isolation finally giving a second Ripley their own film franchise. And all of the different re-releases of Alien 3. I think it was just a really good big time to be an Alien fan. I hadn't considered the fact that it was also the 40th of Alien this year. I mean, it's we talk about it so much you'd think I would remember, but you know, that's me. What is this? Was this the second fastest Alien sequel ever at five years, six years? Like, this didn't take very long at all. No, it didn't. And even from the very beginning, Ridley Scott was hinting at prospects of a sequel before Prometheus was ever released. Lindelof was also considered to return as the writer, but ultimately he passed. And something else that I found that was really interesting was that Ridley Scott had said in fall of 2014 that there would be no xenomorphs in this film. In fact, what he said was, quote, the beast is done. Cooked. Cooked. What a word. And I remember remember that very clearly that he had made this whole thing about how this was going to be the Prometheus line of films and Alien would be its own thing and this would be Prometheus in a way that would allow Neil Blomkamp who, number one, when you said Lindelof, I was like, who's Linda? Loff. Ah. And so I had to think about it and now I'm like, Blomkamp is like, Blomkamp absolutely sounds like I don't, it just, it sounds gross. Poor guy. It's a tough last name but, you know, visionary director, good for him. I feel like there was an attempt to allow parallel Alien franchises by not having the Aliens in the Prometheus line but ultimately you need the aliens to sell an alien film. I know, right? It was obfuscated for a while though, and it wasn't until spring of 2017 that it became finally clear that yes, this was not going to be the case. We are going to see Xenomorphs again. The film was very briefly titled Alien Paradise Lost. That was the title that was released in September of 2014, but by November of 2015, the title was changed to Alien Covenant. You know, Ridley Scott is a very well-versed director at this point. He's had such a long and career and he's been so successful I have to assume he has this library in his house and every now and then he pulls a book off the shelf and he's like ah the tale of Prometheus I think there's an alien movie about this ah Milton I think there's an alien movie about this yeah he definitely is a guy who does a lot of different things this movie was after The Martian in 2015 starring Matt Damon and before All the Money in the World in 2017 starring Michelle Williams depicting the events surrounding the 1973 kidnapping of John Paul Getty III because I guess that happen? I have never heard of that film or the real thing involving it, but also funny story, I used to get the talented Mr. Ripley and Ripley Scott and Ridley Scott, like I used to make it all one big thing. Yeah, I get that. And so when you said Matt Damon just now, I was like, oh, is he in my thoughts? Matt Damon is always in my thoughts. Let me be clear on that. I saw a post on Facebook earlier this morning about The Departed, and so I was like, hey Echo, how old is Matt Damon again? Oh, thanks. Thanks, Echo. Yeah, he pretty. He real pretty. So there's four different names that are credited with the screenwriting talents on this film. Under screenplay it is John Logan and Dante Harper and under story it is Jack Paglin and Michael Green because it passed basically through all four of those hands in succession. The first script was written in June 2013 by Jack Paglin with Michael Green hired to rewrite in March of 2014. Dante Harper was later hired to write a new script but extensive rewrites were performed by John Logan. Two of those names I didn't really find much on Dante Harper and Jack Higlin, but Michael Green is apparently a guy who has done a fuck ton of stuff, including contributing to DC Comics on Batman Lovers and Mad Men in 2008, Batman Superman in 2008 to 2009, and Supergirl in 2011. I mean, it's no Nash Bridges, but I guess it's a credit. Well, he got his start on Sex in the City, Rob Thomas's Cupid, and David E. Kelly's Snoops, so that's something. This guy has the gayest filmography I can imagine. Well, yeah, but no, legit, 
legit because he created that NBC show Kings in 2009, which was an early role for a young Sebastian Stan, where he played a super fucking gay prince. So yeah, kind of a gay filmography. He is going to be the showrunner on the upcoming adaptation of Why the Last Man and has tons of television experience already, having worked on Smallville, Jack and Bobby, Everwood, Heroes, The River. Remember that? We genuinely liked that show, All Things Considered, despite itself. He's also a huge contributor to the Blade Runner franchise, having written the screenplay for Blade Runner 2049, as well as two of the short films in the lead-up. And he's worked with Kenneth Branagh a few times. He wrote Murder on the Orient Express, and he co-wrote the Jungle Cruise movie that's coming out. You know, when you said Kenneth Branagh worked with this guy, I immediately was like, okay, okay, a Midsummer Night's Dream of Electric Sheep. (laughs) As for John Logan, he got a lot of his early work in horror. His first film was the 1999 adventure horror film Bats, starring Lou Diamond Phillips. As a kid, a bunch of us went, and we thought it was so bad. Low-budget 90s horror is the greatest gift. I love throwing things like that in, because you just never know when Nico's gonna explode like that. His next thing was co-writing Any Given Sunday with Oliver Stone. Yeah, I know. He also worked with Ridley Scott back in the year 2000 on the film Gladiator, which he wrote the script for, which was nominated for an Academy Award and a BAFTA. His next film wasn't quite as well-received, The Time Machine in 2002, which I love. Like, it's cheesy, but it's cute, and it has a great score, and you're gonna hear me say that a lot over the next few years. He wrote the script for Star Trek Nemesis in 2002, so another person who works on Star Trek, Last Samurai in 2003, Aviator in 2004, which was nominated for an Award, a BAFTA, Golden Globes, and a whole fuck ton of other awards. He wrote the script for Sweeney Todd in 2007. I see that. I see your face. You said that hopeful, like it would get me to perk up excitedly. No, I said it because I wanted to see what your reaction was. I, for a moment, and not to digress, right, because I'm never going to get to do an entire podcast about all the different recorded releases of Sweeney Todd to interact with this for a moment. The script, from what I understand, to the regrettable Johnny Depp Sweeney Todd is not the film that we got. From what I understand, it was a much truer to the Sondheim work. Oh, well then great, we can like this guy. As a matter of fact, he went so far as to rewrite the Greek chorus of the Sweeney Todd ballad to have a specific narrator, and Anthony Stewart Head recorded all of the audio as the balladeer of Sweeney Todd, but it was cut to put more focus on Johnny Depp. Don't say things like that to me. Oh, I know. The the idea that there is out there a vague... Like, my dream roles are Mrs. Lovett and Anthony, so like... All these fools out here talking about the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, and now we want the John Logan cut of Sweeney Todd. (laughs) Also, like, the John Logan cut, like, for a Sweeney Todd cut? Come on, like, it's right there. Justice for meat pies! So from Sweeney Todd, he went on to write Hugo, which was nominated for an Academy Award, along with many other awards. And he wrote the next two Bond films, Skyfall in 2012 and Spectre in 2015. As for television, he's notable for creating the series Penny Dreadful, which ran from 2014 to 2015 as well as its upcoming follow-up series, Penny Dreadful City of Angels in 2020. That makes a lot more sense than my pitch, was, which was going to be Penny Dreadfuller House. Uh... Uh... That's going to be brutal to edit. <laughs> that might be the worst thing we've ever done on this show. Oh no, wait, we watched Dark Phoenix, my bad. As for the composer, it is a man named Jed Kurzel, who is a singer-songwriter and founding member of the blues rock duo, The Mess Hall. And I just, I constantly stumble when I see founding member of a duo. Well, yeah, there's only so many of you, so obviously it's fine. Uh, his brother, Justin Kurzel, is a film director and frequent collaborator. Their first film that they worked on together was Snowtown in 2011, which 
which was also his brother's directorial debut and earned him several award nominations. And he also did the score for Babadook in 2014, Macbeth in 2015, and Assassin's Creed in 2016. Those last two films, by the way, were also starring Michael Fassbender. I didn't even know there was a Fassbender Macbeth. Was the Fassbender Macbeth that was scored by Curzon Dax also directed by Kenneth Branagh? No, but that would have been so cool. You know how much Kenneth Branagh loves Shakespeare and like being involved in every single fuck Shakespeare. I guess he's moved on from Shakespeare and now he's into Agatha Christie though. Yeah, you know, he's a diehard Marblehead. He's a parophile and he just can't be stopped. That was awful and I love it. We really need to talk about the phenomenal number of shorts. Last Supper, Meet Walter, Phobos, The Crossing, Advent, The Crew Messages of Daniels, Tennessee, Oram, Rosenthal, and Lope, The Alien Covenant Audi Lunar Quattro Commercial, She Won't Go Quietly, and the aforementioned David's Lab Last Signs of Life. There was so much shit in these. And the only one that I think we have seen before this project is Last Supper. I definitely remember us having watched that one before, Possibly before the movie came out. I don't remember that. I remember being really excited and them announcing that it was coming out on like a Friday. And so like I was really looking forward to it and we watched it. It gave us so much hope. And we were like, what the fuck, James Franco? Right. And so I made a comment in Prometheus that they would have never been able to convince me that they could get Guy Pierce for five minutes. What a dumb thing. Because they definitely got James Franco for five minutes. If five minutes. He's in Last Supper and then a handful of clips throughout the film. But I would say James Franco has a grand total of four minutes of screen time? Yeah, probably. It was weird not giving him a crew message. I have to assume it has something to do more with, like, pay and the amount of time that they had him than anything else, but maybe not. Maybe they just didn't even want to develop that character, and or, like, why not turn it into a cameo instead of have it be a nobody? I felt almost every single minute of this was just sort of generic background where Ridley Scott was using manipulative language to skirt around the fact that he was saying misleading things, but they technically weren't untrue intercut with scenes from the film like I'm not trying to shit on it but a lot of this stuff was kind of garbagey with the exception of The Crossing and Advent who boy David you are not a well gentleman and I really appreciated the addition of those scenes it added something on seeing this film again because even before this project started I was thinking in advance about Covenant and where everything was going and I was thinking about what I remembered of the relationship between David and Shaw and wishing that there had been a little bit more development there I felt that the first time I saw this movie that David just came across as a psychopath and completely no emotion and I didn't really feel any motivation coming from him. I didn't feel anything to connect with for that character and to have him develop in this first person narrative the notion that he had this affection for Dr. Shaw. If he's lying, he's only lying to himself because those notes are more for him in the short films than anything else. I love that you said that the first time you watched this, you didn't really understand David because I feel like I didn't either. I feel like I walked away from Covenant, having watched Covenant and Prometheus back to back with all of the bonuses and done all of the research we've done. I feel like I now understand David a bit better and I think this goes into a weird category that I'm going to make like three parallel examples. I'm going to use a comic example, a movie example and then a fictional example. The comic example is Chris Claremont planned his return to X-Men and what storylines that he had begun before he left that he'd been working on that for so many years that when he finally came back to the X-Men, eight years 
after leaving, it was honestly kind of a mess at times because he was so excited to get so many ideas out. The ideas tended to compete with one another. It's kind of like Scorsese and Gangs of New York. He had wanted to make it in the 70s with Meryl Streep, and by the time he made it, it was 2000 with Cameron Diaz, and that is a very different film, and he'd thought about it for a little too long. And it kind of brings me to an episode of The Golden Girls, where Blanche has decided to become a writer in the tradition of the great Southern writers like those so famous they need not be mentioned. And when no one understands her book, she begins to immediately blame everyone else. But now the truth is she wrote the book in a fever dream and it's a nightmare and it's incomprehensible. But she immediately says, you're just all not smart enough to get my book. And I don't think I should have to watch your movies multiple times and watch all of the bonus pieces to make a quality film out of your narrative. I truly do think I appreciate the Alien franchise far more than I did before. And I'm going to really put my guns to this. I really think that Resurrection, Prometheus, and Covenant represent a trilogy of films in a really weird way. They represent a trilogy of films about the notions of evolution as they relate to the human condition. It's just unfortunate that the end point of that evolution, the final moment in the Alien franchise we've seen so far, was by somebody not Ridley Scott who would go on to design the earliest stages. But yeah, I'm frustrated that a lot of this material didn't make it into the films themselves. Like, The Crossing could have been a Prometheus epilogue. And you know, we've talked a lot about the David stuff. We haven't even touched on any of the crew things, but for me, that's in part because I just didn't care for most of it. It felt to me in a lot of ways like the crew of the Covenant was basically just a poor photocopy of the crew from Prometheus. You know, writing a movie is hard, especially in this franchise. I'm not trying to, like, come at that notion. I even mentioned earlier that John Logan was saying that he wanted to incorporate elements from Prometheus, but I think that in doing it, not a lot of attention was paid to these characters. I feel like the shorts didn't supplement any further information about the crew. If anything, it raised more questions that I don't care to find out the answers to. I think Daniels was very weirdly oppositional in a lot of her videos and the shorts that were outside of the film, which I felt was deeply incongruous with her character in the film of Covenant, who, even in the film, is specifically going through a very heavy grieving period. We barely know her before she loses her husband, the James Franco character, which, again, in many ways, is just reminiscent of the character of Dr. Shaw, who also lost her life partner in fire. And honestly, as much as I appreciate those actors and the work put into crafting those characters, Logan Marshall Green's character and James Franco's character could be the same person. Yeah, even in that just very short 30 second snippet that we see of the character in the film where he's rock climbing, he is very reminiscent of the character Charlie Holloway from Prometheus. Very cavalier, sexy, smug, charming, teasing the female love interest character. I do like Daniels a lot more than Shaw, which I find very strange. I like Shaw a lot more on this watch, and I really enjoy the bits that Numi Rapace came back for to film for these shorts and for the movie. I think it's really cool when actors are willing to do brief appearances like that, even if they aren't coming back for a whole film. And 
I did like her more on this watch, but I still prefer Daniel's. I don't know if it's because I immediately feel for that character because she's obviously going through something very heavy right now. I don't know. I think for me it might be that there's this wide-eyed dreamerness to the way Shaw handles everything, whereas a good portion of what Daniel's is trying to attempt is grounded in realism. Most of the Xeno gals focus on realistic ways to create change or to survive. And Shaw is really the outlier. She's an optimistic dreamer. And the rest just don't fit that mold. And I love that you bring up what Daniels brings to the film as a Xeno gal. There were a lot of really interesting things about the dynamic of this cast. To jump a little ways in, the first major alien death scene when one of the crew members is infected and brought back to their shuttle and it ultimately results in the shuttle exploding. It was a really interesting scene. I even turned to you and said, we've just watched all of the alien movies and I have never seen someone lose their shit so heavily and so extremely in an alien movie. She locks one of the other crew members in with this guy who's like exploding and she's panicking and calling everyone and she's firing a gun wildly. Oh my gosh, I have never... I feel like that's what would have happened if Lambert had taken more initiative in the initial alien film and like that's what it would look like if someone that panicky was in control of this situation. I really understand what you're going for. And I think it has to do with the transition in filmmaking from one point to another. Something I really liked that Chris Podcast said on a recent episode of Now and Again was he attacked the idea of the term elevated horror because it implies that there was something unelevated about previous iterations of horror. And that's just not fair because so many of them are quality films. They're just made a little bit differently. So it's almost like Ridley Scott got the same memo and was like, I'm going to buck tradition and this is just going to have some crazy like stabby murder murder because the body horror in Prometheus is uncomfortable the body horror in this is pretty gross out and I think the elevated responses are matched to pitch for the change in exploding gut scenes and it isn't just the method of horror delivery that Ridley Scott updated for the film in a lot of ways this film parallels aliens the focus on settling a new location discovering a new land and understanding the difficulties in human sprawl. It's certainly a recurring theme in this franchise, this notion of expansion and the dangers thereof. Something that kept springing to mind as I was watching this movie is it felt in some ways like Oregon Trail in space. And in fact, even the planet that they're trying to get to, Origa 6, it sounds like Oregon Trail, but these people are pioneers. And I think it was such an interesting and bold choice to open the film on a horrific tragedy that has nothing to do with the alien plot. That's just something that happens on experimental colonizing trips. Now, I have a theory that I think David might have had something to do with it, but Kevin was like, no, prove it. And I'm like, I can't. I just can't science how it would how, how? You know, you never know what they're going to do in the next movie. It turns out David might be the person who created all xenomorphs. Maybe he did. Maybe he can control space storms. Who knows? Something I also saw that I noticed in the film that I thought was really cool, because you mentioned aliens, when Daniels is looking at the pictures and all of her dead husband's things, she's next to one of those nature screens, like Ripley is in the movie Aliens that we talked about after she is rescued. So in that way, it actually parallels Ripley missing her own family in the form of her lost daughter. Yeah. One of the strengths of this movie is like the original Alien, you're really not sure what's happening till it's finally happening, whereas Prometheus was a very 
calculated and choreographed film. Covenant is a little bit more seat of your pants. To that end, the characters are a little bit more unpredictable. I don't know that I think, you know, there's that joke from Community that the only Inspector Spacetime nobody cared for was the woman, but it's not because she was a woman. She was a terrible inspector. It's not that I think the religious captain is the terrible captain because he's religious, but it sure was handled strangely. I don't know. It was just something about Billy Crudup and his performance and the fact that he was just so put upon. And I just don't think that he was right for the role in the first place. You know, he's a perfectly fine actor, but I think that he was not the right choice for this character. And that's really, truly part of it for me. Because it's a hard character to like and root for in the first place. I think that's true of just about every member of an alien expedition. It takes the right actor to bring that character's likability to life. Any one of the characters in Alien or Aliens could have been completely unsympathetic to the point where you rooted for their death, but those actors managed to make you root for their survival. But think about if Tom Skerritt hadn't been the person to play Dallas, if it had been someone that had a harder or a less kind or a less friendly edge. One of the things that made that character so iconic was the fact that he had such genuine affection and care for his crew. And maybe that's what I love about what Last Supper adds to the film. That idea that the crew care about each other and know each other. It feels a shame that Last Supper wasn't in the movie and was I'm going to assume removed in favor of the very masturbatory Guy Pierce scene with David at the beginning of the film. Oh, you mean the one that didn't ultimately add very much to the plot? Yeah, that one. Like it kind of added a little bit. Like I get it. David's bitter. I get it. But it helps me understand David a bit better. Bitter, better David. I get it. I think one of the big problems with this film as well is the size of the cast. I had a hard time keeping track of who everyone was and the added element of this being couples. It was hard for me to understand who's supposed to be sad right now because their partner just died. Like one of the couples is two gay dudes and by the end I was able to tell who they were but you know no one is overly affectionate or overtly that's my whatever and frankly they're not memorable enough to not be that specific. The only one who was at all my wife my wife was Danny what's his name face? Danny McBride. And he was like my wife my wife. And even then I it took me a while to understand which one was his wife and it turns out she's the one that went nuts and like blew everything up in a panic so I'm like I'm really sad that your wife died but she like lost her shit and was very bad at her job so I I, I don't know what to tell you bro try harder with your second wife but he doesn't get to have a second wife no no because everybody dies but first David shows up kind of like Dulcia in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie in a giant flowing cloak with a long staff and you know come to think of it Michael Fassbender has shown his long staff in other films as well it's true it's true the scenes with David and Walter are really weird to watch. I think Michael Fassbender gives really great and distinctive performances as both Walter and David, but, you know, you realize you're just watching Michael Fassbender talk to Michael Fassbender on a screen, and watching Michael Fassbender teach Michael Fassbender to play a flute on a screen, and it's, it's just, where did the rest of the cast go? Where is this heading? Like, what is the inside of Ridley Scott's head like? He's like, I'm going to write Michael Fassbender real person fanfic. He's going to teach himself to play flute. Kind of. I also, you know, I think the sequence of David killing all of the engineers looks really cool, but just raises more questions. Was every single engineer in the planet in that city? And like, why? And like, how? 
Yeah, this movie is like three-fourths of a good movie, and then like two-fifths of a bad movie, and then it's all kind of cut into different shapes. And the rest of it is a weird car commercial. Yeah, uh, the car commercial. Yeah, we kind of skipped talking about the car commercial, because... Car commercial. Spider-Man's car commercials are great, and they are canon, and they get J.B. Smoove full roles in the sequel of the film, and feature DJ Khalid, and like, those are cool. The Alien Covenant car commercial was like... Like, live action Wally, and then also there's a xenomorph in the background. So there's nothing to talk about. I don't want to talk about it. I found a really bold choice in the film was not just dispensing with Shaw, but genuinely mutilating her corpse. Yeah, that was intense. And part of why I didn't understand the character motivation, because like, whoa. Something that's really cool, though, is the appearance of Shaw's mutilated corpse is very similar to an H.R. Geiger painting that he did of his girlfriend of all things, and it's noteworthy that this was the first Alien film to come out after the death of H.R. Geiger in 2014. Uh, but that is really, you know, pour out a vial of the virus for your homie. Exactly. Another thing I have to say in favor of this movie, though, is that it really reminded me how dangerous just one xenomorph can be. Having gone through this whole project, we've seen a lot of different movies from Alien all the way through to the xenomorph appearances in the Predator franchise, and we haven't gotten a lot of single xenomorph movies, and this one really reminded me how dangerous one of these aliens at a time truly can be. We technically got two different aliens, but it was only ever one at a time. And I I really agree with what you're saying because one of the things for me was, in retrospect, that's what I didn't care for about Aliens. I felt it devalued the fear of the first movie, and I feel like with AVP, it just sort of kept building and building and building. This movie really did manage to bring things back to Alien in a beautifully seamless way. They also managed to give us a unique alien death in this one, which is pretty cool that they were able to accomplish after nearly 40 years, crushing the Xenomorph to death with the giant claw was a really interesting way to see it go. I thought this movie managed a number of firsts. For instance, while we famously say alien movies end about 10 minutes too late, I felt this movie kept its runtime at a good clip. Maybe that's part of why all of that stuff was cut out. But instead of the final act shock being the alien survived, the final act shock is that Walter has been replaced by David, and David is ensuring the success of his xenomorph experiments, and the first that that represented, right? Because, like, the alien isn't dead and starts killing everybody off ten minutes before the end of the movie. Kind of closes up really weirdly quickly. And there's that weird coitus scene that I have to wonder if is a reference to the Prometheus coitus scene. I, I don't know. I did not like the there's still one more xenomorph tag in this movie. It's sort of become redundant by this point, which is why I do appreciate that it had, as you said, the final tag surprise. It is very reminiscent to me of what the original Alien film was potentially going to do in the first place with the xenomorph killing Ripley and impersonating her on the final transmission to Earth. In a lot of ways, that's sort of what David does here. I can't imagine Daniels is ever 
never going to wake up again, but her body will be of plenty of use to David for his xenomorph experiments. And, you know, that's the same sort of surprise horror that the xenomorph winning at the end of Alien would have been. I don't know how I feel about a movie actually ultimately getting that ending, because one of the great things about deciding not to go with that ending for the original for me is, it's gonna sound so corny, but it's choosing hope. I like when movies have happy endings. I appreciate and understand the value of darker films and nihilism and hopelessness because there does exist that in our world. But, you know, I also think that we need more positivity and joy and happiness and success. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, this probably will not be the final Alien film either way. In fact, I don't know if this will be the last time that we even see the android David. I don't believe Ridley Scott wants it to be. I think he said that there should at least be two films bridging the gap between Prometheus and the original Alien film. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens there. On the subject of hope and how hope relates to Alien, I agree that it can be a really difficult prospect to have a movie end on such a dark note. If there is any hope, it's that Ripley is coming. This film ends with Waylon Yutani getting their hands on knowledge that the Xenomorph exists. That's really all they get here. Some v- biological idea of what's going on and a vague sector to look at thanks to David. The dark moment they're showing is a foregone conclusion at the beginning of Alien, even if the audience doesn't know it yet. So, I agree with you. This was a really hard moment to go out on, especially after a movie that at the time I felt was really underwhelming and then looked like it was going to be the final installment. Knowing that Ridley Scott has one more movie up his sleeve and that Fox has greenlit it and there's a possibility of an Alien TV show and all of these shorts have been so successful, I'm optimistic. And you know, I really like that. That's an awesome perspective and something that I hadn't considered. Of course, it's devastating watching them build the gingerbread house, but you know that Hansel and Gretel are still going to escape. And I'm at least relieved that we get to come back to the Alien universe. We have so many different perspectives to take a look at. And it's like so exciting and I hate to be this excited, but it really is kind of like an anthology of alien perspectives on this universe. And I have no idea what's in any of them. So I'm very excited for all of them. Kevo, until we return to take a look at The Predator and then the Alien Shorts released for the 40th. Where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And you can find me on the Facebook page for this lovely program, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Real Nico Kevo Action, which is also our joint Instagram and Tumblr. Over on Twitter, you can find the two of us at Real Nico Kevo Act, E-C-K. You can also find the super fun, super cool, super inclusive superhero stories that we've been telling for, oh, about five years now over at KidRiotComics.com. Nico, where can the folks at home find you? You guys, as always, can find me all over this amazing network, making themes for shows are too fast, too forever, and on my own shows, like X's for Podcast, where Kevo, along with our boyfriend Jonah and our best friends Dylan and Kyle, take a look at the X-Men comic book franchise spanning 50 amazing years of X-Men. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and until next time, nobody can see you in space because the Predator is invisible. Okay, I got it. Yeah, I got that. Yeah.